0: Hey, everyone. Today's guest is the amazing Journey Smollett, who you know from Full House, Friday Night Lights, and recently Lovecraft Country, which is so good. Journey is such a joy. And we talked about everything from our mutual love of raisin bran to work ethic, artistic integrity, marriage, and divorce. I so enjoyed our conversation. And I really hope you do too. Later in the episode, April and I talk with a listener who doesn't know how or when to open up to a potential partner. She lost her stepfather two years ago to suicide, and some of our conversation might be hard for some to hear. She was so open with sharing her story, and like with all of our calls, I hope it will be helpful for others to hear. I am so grateful for what the Unqualified community has become and how supportive you are of each other. If you want to write to us, just go to unqualified.com and look for the link. But first, here she is, Journey Smollett.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Unqualified with your host, Anna Ferris.
0: I just adore you. I have been a fan of yours since Friday Night Lights. I just love everything you do. I've been watching Lovecraft. You're so fucking great.
2: Wow. Thank you. For one, I'm such a fan of yours. I mean... You are such a force and that means so much coming from you. So I appreciate all the love, really. Okay, I'm going to ask you some life questions
3: and
0: we will see where they take us. Okay, we'll start out easy. Do you eat boxed commercial cereal? Yes.
2: What's your favorite flavor?
0: Raisin Bran. I love Raisin Bran too.
2: Oh, it's everything. I love raisins. I used to hate raisins when I was little and I would pick out the raisins from the Raisin Bran. And now I love raisins and I love Raisin Bran. And I leave the raisins where they belong.
0: If you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? Oh,
2: on an island with lots of sun and beach weather. That's all I care about. You could throw me anywhere in the ocean. Like water is very calming for me. I
0: know that you were on Full House when you were five. So you must have been in Los Angeles at that time. But were you born in Los Angeles?
2: No, I was born in New York, Queens,
0: Elmhurst. And then your family relocated to Los Angeles.
2: We were gypsies, you know, we moved all over. One minute we were living in L.A., one minute we were living in New York, lived in the Bay. So, yeah, they relocated for a time to L.A. and then went back to New York. We kept driving back and forth. Literally, we would get in the car and just drive to New York or drive to L.A. Like the whole family would do road trips all the time. Do you like doing road trips now? I love it. Yeah, I do. I do too. It's something very comforting about driving and listening to music and stopping at random places to find garlic stuffed olives or long licorice or, you know, like there's so many great parts of America that we've driven through and you find like little trinkets or you just see different parts of life, way different cultures live. I mean, I think it's very fascinating. I love it.
0: What did your very unique childhood experience working so young, being in the industry, having a family in the industry give you? And did you ever envy like a
2: normality? That's a good question. What is normal? You know, my normal was my normal. I didn't grow up thinking I was abnormal. I didn't grow up thinking, oh, I am missing out on so much. It was all I knew. You know, I started when I was 10 months old, Anna. You know, so it's literally all I knew. Craft service, right? You know, the set life, learning my lines, picking up new quirks in order to become a character. So, no, I think when I became a teenager, I definitely considered quitting because the business side of this industry is rough. It's not for kids. Right. And while you're going through that adolescent period in which you're struggling with all these insecurities and doubts about life, you know, you question what your reality is and all that natural life stuff happens. It's tough to do that in the industry. And so I did kind of like step back from it a little bit. I also struggled with acne. (laughs) So, you know, I became very shy and like reclusive in a way. But no, I can't say that I necessarily envied other kids' childhood. Also, I wasn't a child star. So I don't know if I would have been constantly working all the time, burning out, you know, unable to fill my well up again. Maybe I would have had that experience. But no, I didn't grow up envying other kids. I also really loved it. The craft, the art of it, I really enjoyed it the way kids enjoy Little League. And, you know, I have to say, I, I was lucky enough that I didn't have one of those stage parents. My mom wasn't that. We grew up poor. You know, she could have easily had me take more jobs or say yes to the things she was saying no to in order for us to be rich and not poor. And I think that helped protect my love for it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. My personal experience, I was a self-conscious teenager. I was a very late bloomer. And I found, like, even going up locally for auditions with girls that seemed more beautiful or, Mm -hmm. I don't know, more confident, Mm -hmm. I viewed that process as pretty rough. And then... In Los Angeles in my early 20s with all my new friends essentially being my competition. Mm. So you're like alternately envying your friends. Mm. You want to be happy for them, but the comparison level is tough for a young person to absorb that, I think, in a healthy way.
2: I think what you you speak to is very real. You know, you're kind of in the business of rejection. Like, I just remember a period of time where it felt like, okay, I'm going on how many auditions just to get a yes. So you get so many no's before you get a Yes. But also, I think it's interesting for me. I can't say that it was like my friends or peers, because honestly, Anna, like it would have been the roles you got, you know, be like, I just wanted to get in the audition. Like I wasn't even actually getting in the room to be real frank. Right. So I think more so what I dealt with when it comes to like appearance and all that kind of stuff is trying to not fall into what they want you to be in order to get the opportunities. Honestly, for most of my early 20s, it was, well, they're not willing to go ethnic on that role or they're not opening up that role, you know? And so for me, it made me have to really work against all that shit that you'd have to work against just being a Black woman in general, right? But it's just right there in your face. (laughs) I can't even get in the room because of how you feel I look, casting director. So it has nothing to do with my talent, has nothing to do with anything. It's just literally like they don't want a Black woman being opposite this white dude in a love story. And so I think for me, I just had to have like a real sense of self of like your value is not diminished just because someone's inability to see your work. But also, I got to be honest, most of my friends in the business, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, I don't know, most of my friends were way older than me. So maybe that's why I didn't struggle with that as much. You know, like most of my friends growing up were like my mentors, like an Alfre Woodard or Sam Jackson, like people whom I would worked with when I was a kid or played their child or something like that. They just kind of took me under their wing. My mom kind of kept me away from a lot of my quote unquote peers because the partying, being out late at night, the industry stuff. Like, I never was the cool kid. (laughs) Oh, me neither. Well, we should have been uncool together. Yes, that would have been amazing. (laughs) Girl, when I tell you I wasn't allowed to date until I was 18 years old. I think at the
0: time, my mom's top priority in life was to maintain my virginity. Here's
2: the thing. It wasn't even about virginity. It was about I wasn't going to get close enough to a dude to be able to do anything. (laughs) So I don't even know if it was virginity. I think she didn't even want me kissing people. I had four brothers also who all thought they were my dad and still think they're my dad. I mean, it was quite the challenge. So thinking back to it, I'm like, actually, who were my friends? My siblings were my friends,
0: <laughs> you know? Well, that's what I wonder. Like, you're a traveling family. You're all together in a car. Did you have, like, a high school, or were you working
2: with on-set teachers? We were all homeschooled, and then some of my older siblings went to public school once they became high school age. But my mom started homeschooling them, not because of the industry, but she felt that the New York public school system sucked. <laughs> so- <laughs> She was like, I can do this better than you guys. I'm going to keep them home, you know? And so we were homeschooled. And then when I was 15, I started taking classes at the local junior college. So again, I was around adults, not my peers. And yeah, I was kind of always the youngest person in the room growing up. Did it make communication with kids your age odd for you? Yeah, because I thought they were so strange. In my head, I always felt that I was older than them. And adults would always say that about me, but I was always around adults. And so with kids, it kind of felt like, are you really crying over a toy right now? I mean, there's real things happening in life, (laughs) you know, but also my mom had us very aware of world issues. And like, I was put in charge of accounting in the family when I was really young, which is such a strange thing to people when I say this again, because they don't know my mom. She was a hippie. And so she thought it was very important for me to know how to take care of my money. So she literally had me reading my contracts, paying bills, doing the accounting for the family. I also loved math. So I was a nerd. And like dealing with bill collectors and you're staring at me like, oh, this poor girl, she didn't have a job. (laughs) I think doing theater in
0: Seattle, like I spent a lot of time with these adult theater actors and they had a different kind of creative cynicism almost. Mm. And so my exposure to all those adults, those fascinating people and that environment, like in the afternoons and evenings, then going back to school the next day, I just didn't know exactly what to talk about with anybody.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: And my mom hated the idea of me being boy crazy or like a fan. She didn't want me to like worship anything or anybody. Yeah. And I'm appreciative of that now, but I didn't know how to talk to anybody about like, I'm a little old for Backstreet Boys, (laughs) but you know, like I didn't have a common ground So, okay, wait, Journey, enough about me. (laughs) Do you have a favorite rainy day movie that you could watch over and over?
2: Oh, An American in Paris. I've never seen that movie. (gasps) Oh, I love it so much. You know, I love musicals. And growing up, my mom would always watch Turner Classic movies or AMC. And... Oh, man. I had such a crush on Gene Kelly and just wanted to be in a scene with him. I love it. Yeah. That or Sound of Music. That's
0: another one. Would you ever want to do Broadway, like a big musical like that?
2: I would love to. I really would love to because it's the thing that terrifies me the most. Musical theater, I have to say, I am in awe of their... Capacity to use their instrument, protect their instrument day in and day out. And yeah, it's just amazing when you go and you're like, they don't hit a wrong note, man. <laughs> you know, and I would love to. I would absolutely love to because it terrifies me to do it. So I know I have to do it one day.
0: Journey, I was Heidi in the musical Heidi <gasps> in Seattle and they had to eliminate all of my solos. <laughs> They realized during the rehearsal process, (laughs) this little girl can't sing. This is amazing. How old were you? I was like 12 into 13. Were you aware of it? Like, did it hurt your feelings? I was aware of it. It didn't hurt my feelings. I feel like at that age, like my ego shortly after that kind of came crumbling down with puberty, But at that time, it had been my, I don't know, my third or fourth play. And I was relieved, I think. But it's hard to accurately remember. Yeah. Do you keep a diary or a journal? I journal. Does it come easily to you? And you have a baby. How do you journal with a baby and working?
2: Honestly, journaling is what helps me keep my sanity. I try to do it in the morning before I even get out of bed. I tend to wake up with this level of anxiety in the morning that I have to attempt to not bring it into my day. And so the journaling was something that I did a lot growing up. And then in the haze of getting married and coming into your womanhood, I stopped journaling in my 20s and yeah, picked it up a few years ago again. And it's been a lifesaver. How has
0: this last year been for you? How has it affected you? I took up puzzling and knitting. Super productive.
2: Oh, that's amazing. No, I want to learn how to knit. Can you teach
0: me how to knit? I can. It's really easy. I think there's something in my brain that needs like a lot of just something going on all the time.
2: Yeah, I can relate to that. Is it hard to just sit down and do nothing? Yeah. Don't you think? It's very hard for me.
0: Yeah, and I bought a cello over this time. And I thought this will be my project. It is not my project. It's in the bathroom. So I don't have to look at it, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Journey, do you collect anything?
2: Yes, I collect a few things. Anytime I go to a live show or live performance, I keep the tickets and or the playbill. So I have like a collection of tickets. What's the best concert you've ever been to? Oh, hands down, Fleetwood Mac. At the Honda Center in 2001 or 2003. I can't remember the exact year. Thunder only happens when it's raining. <laughs> you better say. <sing. laughs> oh, God. Me and my younger brother, Jake. These tickets were for my mother for Mother's Day. And she couldn't make it. She had to watch my younger brother. We couldn't find someone. <laughs> so then we went. You guys wouldn't
0: watch your little brother. I, Happy Mother's Day. Oh, shit. You
2: can't make you got a babysit. Oh, sorry, mom. <laughs> she dropped us off. She thought it was so sweet. But she she was like, you guys go. You guys go. You know, it's so me and Jake went and we had the best time of our lives. Yeah. You're like, mom, it was the best concert I will ever go to. <laughs> the best concert I've ever been to. Have you ever written a fan letter? Yes. When I was 10 or 11, I wrote a fan letter to Tina Turner. I was watching Oprah one day with my mother, and Oprah was talking about living your wildest dreams. And it was a competition of, like, write a letter to Oprah, and you could come to the audience and meet Tina Turner and live your wildest dreams, or Oprah would help your wildest dreams come true. I don't know. I can't remember. So I wrote Tina Turner a letter and sent it to Oprah's Chicago Harpo Studios saying, I really want my mother to meet Tina Turner. This would be my wildest dream. Clearly the letter wasn't very good because we didn't win the competition. But I wrote Tina and just how much I loved her and how much she meant to me and my mother. Yeah. I bet you were a backup. (laughs) I want to believe that. (laughs) Yeah, you were. You were. Okay. Do you have a favorite book or author? Favorite is tough. I'm a Libra, so you know I can't just decide on one. Um, I have some favorites. Richard Wright is one of my all-time favorite authors. There's a book, Black Boy, but also Native Son is incredible. I have recently read quite a few amazing books. Oh, I'm obsessed lately with Glennon Doyle. Hello, yeah. Oh, oh my God. Journey. Yes. It just
0: occurred to me. Yes, I can imagine.
2: Yeah. I just went through a divorce, you know, so.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Because, you know, I've been through two. Oh, have you? And I'm
2: engaged. Oh, congrats. Thanks. Yeah. You know, I, yeah, I was that person who was like, you know what? I'm going to file right before the stay at home order. So it was quite, yeah, that was my last year during COVID, So you know. I
0: always feel like I should have a cigarette and a martini when I talk about multiple (laughs) divorces. I'm a veteran divorcee. Wow. But they were the most intense times of my life. I felt the highest of highs and like kind of the lowest of lows Mm. and selfish, maybe selfishness that had been stored up in me. I felt like I kind of lived for myself. I did what I wanted to do. I went through these months of like attempting to find an identity outside of my relationship again. How has it been for you? Can you relate to these things? Yeah,
2: I have definitely read a lot of Renee Brown. (laughs) Daring Greatly is my ish, just so you know, if you haven't read it. I got to write that down. Read Daring Greatly. I mean, I've been also listening to her podcast lately about leadership. And I'm such a fan of Brene Brown. But yeah, there's so many nuggets. I kind of like keep note of the nuggets, the Brene Brown nuggets in my phone. And she said, when we imprison the heart, when we sever the heart, we kill courage. Come on now. You are essentially dead if you sever your heart. Who are you without your heart, right? If you're not operating from your heart, if you're not leading with your heart, if you've got all these defense mechanisms If you've got your fear, your shame, how much of us go throughout our life operating through our shame? And so she talks a lot in Daring Greatly about daring to lead with your vulnerability, daring to lead with an open heart and how courageous that actually is and how we can show up in courageous ways versus armoring up, right? It kicks my butt in so many ways, I have to say, because I blame myself and shame myself so habitually. I mean, it's ridiculous. When you become a mom, you practice mom shame, mom guilt. Oh, God. Right. In your career, you find ways to be like, ah, I got to do this better. I got to work this harder. I got to study this more, you know, and kindness to oneself has been something I've been trying to really practice over the past year of just being kind to myself. I realized, particularly in my motherhood and how it relates to my work, right? How much I was participating in this self-inflicted mom shaming and mom guilt. And I nursed my son past his third birthday. I mean, throughout Lovecraft Country, throughout Birds of Prey, I was literally doing fight scenes and then coming in the trailer and popping my boob into his mouth. You know, <laughs> I had this real high standard of what motherhood was. But the challenging thing is, how do you service that standard without killing yourself? And I was killing myself. And with COVID, it forced me to stop. It forced me to slow down and reflect on the way I was gunning it, the way I was trying to please everyone just was never gonna be sustainable in my life. You know, everyone in my life, I was constantly trying to predict what do they need? How can I do this? And so you just end up being the person that is just hurt and exhausted and has absolutely nothing left to give to yourself because you've given it all away to everyone else. And so I think over the past year, I've really had to reckon with that because I get so much joy out of seeing other people in my life filled with joy, And I don't think that's wrong. I don't think that's a quality I want to leave or abandon, right? I just have to find the balance. Haven't found the balance. I am finding the balance. I am a work in progress. Again, you know, being kind to myself. But yeah. Do you like being in your 30s? You know, it's funny. For me, age is something I don't really think about. Sometimes I forget how old I am, (laughs) you know? Me too, but probably for different reasons. (laughs) 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 I do find that the more time passes, the more I come into my womanhood in a different way. So that is the aspect of being in my 30s, of just getting older and having more experience that I am loving. Just sitting in my womanhood with more confidence, more self-awareness than what I had in my 20s.
0: I want to talk about the arena of how you get over a divorce.
2: I definitely have been in therapy for sure over the past year, plus trying to do that work, because I find that you just repeat patterns. It does It doesn't matter what relationship you're in, whether it's a relationship to your mother, to your spouse, to your friend, to yourself, to your child. You will repeat the same patterns is what I am learning. And I'm trying to unlearn those patterns that I kind of get in. And so for me, I'm not afraid of relationships or I'm not afraid of love. I just know I have my own shit. I got to, you know, still unlearn while I'm in relationship to myself. Right. Yeah.
1: Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role.
4: Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your
0: purchase. BlueNile.com code LISTEN. Do you think you have an idea of what you want? Like, have you been able to refine your taste a little bit in the idea of a partner? In my relationships, I found myself going to like the complete opposite type of personality or person than the previous relationship. That's
2: interesting. Why do you think you did that? Do you think you were just trying to completely avoid repeating anything or were you just genuinely more attracted to the opposite once you got out of it?
0: Well, I didn't really know what I was looking for. I was young. I was looking for stability and safety in Los Angeles in a new town for me that felt exciting and massive and scary and it felt good to kind of put a relationship to bed. That way I wouldn't have to go through the dating world, being single in Los Angeles, already feeling pretty vulnerable and exposed with sort of like new fame a little bit and I just wanted to put that part of my life Mm -hmm. to bed. I wanted to be able to have, I
2: guess, somebody there at night, you know? Mm -hmm. And so what was the opposite that you ran to and what were you running from?
0: My first husband was a struggling actor in Los Angeles. I had done this horror movie in Seattle. I was a local hire. I played a cheerleader that got (laughs) gutted named Janelle Day. (laughs) Anyway, he was in that movie. He was like the one person I knew in Los Angeles. Super cute. We moved in together, got married. Oh my gosh. It was just like my 20s. The reason why I ask about 30s, I guess, is because I think about my life in the decades and how I'm loving my 40s. I think 20s, I think I was so self-absorbed. Okay, so And you can speak as vaguely as you'd like. What have you learned from that relationship? Or can you say yet? I don't know that I
2: can say yet.
0: That's fair. Can we talk a little bit about your estrangement? Yes. Was it all of your siblings, your entire family, or just you?
2: Yeah, it was. Sadly, my parents separated. You know, my parents had six kids together. And they were together for over 20-something years. And then when they separated, all of us, we lived with my mom. We were closer to my mom. My mom, like, when you meet my mom, she's everyone's mom. You know, like, she's one of the most incredible women you will ever meet. I would love to meet your mom. Yes, let's make a date. Absolutely. Yeah. And my dad, he was the kind of man where my mom was his entire world. And so I think he never really built the bond with us the way she did. And I think that's just the unfortunate thing, you know. And he was such an old school dude, like so much man pride. But also, I think, struggled with his own abandonment issues um, in hindsight. And it's so difficult to explain or to understand. But yeah, it was just because of their divorce. Well,
0: I'm glad that you were able to have... Two years, at least, of some degree of... Healing. Yeah, knowing your dad as an adult, so you have some of those memories.
2: Yes, no, it was quite healing. And we talked about a lot of things. And I, I think I was able to reach a level of understanding, which opened the door for forgiveness, which then opened the door for healing. Okay, more questions.
0: How old were you when you first believed you were in
2: love? I was 21 or 22.
0: Is that the man you married?
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, so you married your first love. Yeah. We were very young. We got married when I was 24. I had just turned 24. We were so young. you know.
0: Did you have people in your life that sort of hinted or intimated, like I did, that you shouldn't get married this young? Yes. But no one can tell you that. I know. And I was like, no, we're going to make it. I mean, I think even the judge that married us, I really think she said something under her breath to like the bailiff or whoever else was there. Like, oh, God, I'll give that like two years. That's rude. Yeah. I remember hearing something like that and feeling really angry about it. So my friends, my new husband and I, we all went to El Coyote, you know, El Coyote on Beverly No, I'm not cool, Ana. I don't know of these places. It's exactly the kind of American-Mexican restaurant that you would imagine. Okay. Anyway, we got kicked out, probably because I was really just mad
2: at myself. (laughs) It's life, you know? You got to experience it. You got to get your heart broken. You got to make mistakes. You got to grow. I don't have any regrets about it, you know? It's a part of my walk. Were you scared to tell your family
0: about, like, A separation? Or did you know that they would be supportive?
2: I have the most incredible family, I have to say. I can't say that there's a lot that I'm scared of telling them. That's awesome. Yeah, I have an incredible support system, I have to say. I'm very blessed.
0: If acting suddenly became illegal, how would you make a living?
2: Math. (laughs) Right? Math or guitar? (laughs) Go and become an accountant. Ah, how would I make a living? Making a living is different than pursuing a passion. Right. Right. Yep.
0: You've been acting longer in your life than I have been. I feel completely unqualified for any other job.
2: Yeah. I can't even imagine a world in which I am not doing something creative. You know, if it's not acting, is it, am I writing something? Dancing was something that I always loved to do. I love movement and the body and am so in awe of. Folks who are able to use their body in in that way as an instrument, right? But I can't imagine doing anything else. I don't know. What's the best advice you've been given? Currently, to surrender and know that I am held. That's
0: pretty great. I feel like I kind of had a little bit of that realization only in the last two or three years, which has been really nice. In such an unstable industry. And in an all-consuming industry.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: What you're speaking to is very true. It's, you know, we are artists, but sometimes this industry has nothing to do with art.
0: I think most of the time, don't you? I mean, it allows me to not take it personally when I just think about, oh, no, this is just money.
2: Ah, okay. You remind me of something. Jonathan Majors, my partner in crime, won Lovecraft Country, Atticus. He sent me this James Baldwin speech about the integrity of an artist. And James Baldwin talks about how it is impersonal. He says, it is impersonal, this force you didn't ask for, and this destiny, which you must accept. It is also your responsibility. If you survive it, if you don't cheat, if you don't lie, it is not only your glory, your achievement, it is almost our only hope because only an artist can tell and only artists have told since we have heard of man what it is like for anyone who gets to this planet and to survive it.
0: Oh my God, that's amazing.
2: So essentially the job of the artists, right, is how do we protect our instrument? How do we escape? How do we stay true to this force? I think for me, you know, Acting has been a mechanism for survival. And all these other things are just one big distraction. And I think those of us who are so lucky to be called to the arts, we have to protect it, you know, because we are the ones who get to illuminate what humanity is actually about. Okay, next question.
0: When or where are you happiest or most content?
2: Surrounded by water, So in a bath, in a pool, in the ocean, in a lake, in the rain, I think I inherently have such fire in my spirit that the water literally (laughs) calms me down.
0: I love that. I would describe myself the same way. I'm a Sagittarian. I don't normally get into that, but you said you were a Libra.
2: How would you self-describe? I don't know a lot about like that world, I kind of dibble and dabble into it. But I think, for one, we su- supposedly we get along with Sagittarians very well, which I believe is true because my mother is a Sagittarius. But balance, I know for sure, is something I'm constantly seeking. When I am working too much or not working enough, you know, if I'm filling up one side of my body, but not the other, I can feel the difference. And it feels out of black. I heard you talk about your journey to South Africa.
0: And I've never been to Africa. I would love to go. And the way people describe their experiences in Africa, to me, sound kind of mythologically life-changing. And it sounds like you felt that way. Will you tell us about South Africa and kind of what it shifted in you or what it gave to you?
2: Oh, goodness. Yes. I've had a very organic relationship to South Africa. Since I was a kid, I was involved with an organization called Artists for New South Africa, ANSA, which was founded by like Alfred Woodard and Blair Underwood and CCH Pounder and all these artists who were working in the late 80s and 90s to assist the anti-apartheid efforts in South Africa. It then transitioned into more of an, how do we help rebuild this nation? And then how do we help fight against the epidemic of HIV AIDS. And so when I got involved, when I was 12, I eventually was taken on a delegation on my 20th birthday to South Africa for the first time. And it was this place in my head growing up that I always wanted to go to. So when I finally got there, I mean, it was quite spiritual for me. It felt, I don't know, there's something in the soil. You can't even describe it. You know, there is something in the air where when folks describe this feeling of Home, it very much so felt that way for me too. And perhaps because I grew up kind of with a feeling of displacement, but I just remember hiking to the top of Table Mountain. I felt, oh, God, you are showing off. You know, you could see 360 degrees of God's creation. Oh, wow. It's unlike anything I've ever experienced since. And I felt so much peace there. And it's interesting because this delegation happened to me at a time in my life where I was seriously considering being like an activist and working in the nonprofit world full time and was really considering leaving this industry. And on that trip, I watched while all these artists, I mean, we met with Archbishop Desmond Tutu and the late, great Mandela. And I realized that it was the art that these artists created that got them there, right? And how their art had impacted folks across borders, in other lives, on other lands, across oceans, right? And how the art could travel well before they physically could travel there. And it was a calling, right? If you were born with the ability to create, to reveal the uniqueness of things, right, to illuminate a side of humanity through your art, then how dare you not do that? So I left feeling incredibly charged to walk in my purpose with more confidence than ever, regardless of what ups and downs I would experience in the industry. So that trip was life changing for me in more ways than one. I love it. I think a lot about the idea of home.
0: And I talk about this all the time on the podcast. But Bob Odenkirk said years ago that I'd never been to Ireland before. But as soon as I stepped off the plane, I had this overwhelming feeling of home. And I think about that a lot because as actors, like you're always a transitory character a little bit in your own life. And so the idea is like seeking that feeling of home. It feels like just a constant search.
2: I can relate to that. I mean, L.A. does not feel like home. And yet it's where I live. It's where most of my family lives. But, you know, I actually wrote an article about that. About how growing up between New York and LA, when people would ask me, Where are you from? I never felt comfortable saying LA. I would just say, I was born in New York. And yet we didn't live in New York as much as we lived in LA, but still, New York felt more like home. The culture, the scene, you know, it's just more artistic. It feels like just the people, people walk. You see people, you know, in L.A. It's like you got to get in your car and drive. And so I can totally relate to just this vibe in L.A. And yet, how do you define home? You know, what is home? Is home here in Vancouver? I think it's that feeling, you know, I think it's that feeling that
0: you had and you'll have again. It might not be Vancouver.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But okay, Journey, what advice would you give your younger self? I think to be kind to yourself. I'm quite harsh on myself and I've always been. Growing up in this industry, you kind of pick up these phantom voices. So did it contribute to it? Hell yeah, I'm sure it did. Was I already pre-wired to have really high standards and like completely unsatisfied most of the time? Possibly. But I think there's so much power in being free of those phantom voices and being free of that sensor, which, you know... The Artist Way, that's another great book that I really love. She talks about doing the morning pages and talks about that inner censor and how it just does not serve us. What is your relationship with the idea of patriotism? I think, to be honest, is the most patriotic you can be. So I think, you know, trying to strive to better the country and trying to rid And free ourselves from our past and and our real complex and, frankly, ugly history is quite patriotic. I think the work of the abolitionists is very patriotic. I think the people who say we are dreamers and we can dream of a reality that is better than our current reality is quite patriotic. Mm -hmm. It might challenge us all to just be better citizens and to take care of thy neighbor. But that's how I've always kind of thought of patriotism, you know, is acknowledging the whole truth of who we are, which can include some very ugly truths and some very noble, beautiful truths as well. Being able to hold the whole truth. That's real patriotism to me. I love that. I completely agree.
0: I think we can only strive to improve through
2: critique.
0: What is your relationship like with social media?
2: I have a complex relationship with social media. I think at its best, it's an incredible tool. It can push movements forward and work for incredible good. And it can be quite damaging. I'm very concerned for the next generation because we didn't grow up with it, right? So I think we can have a bit of a removed point of view. And yet we can't, right? Because if you participate in it, you know how do you become free of the indoctrination, right? Like you're taking in so much. So many images, so many facts, you're taking in other people's lives. How do you have time to spend living your own life when you're consuming so much of everyone else's life? So I struggle with it. I enjoy it sometimes, I really do. I mean, I enjoy like live tweeting with fans while they're watching Lovecraft Country and seeing real time reactions to the episodes. I enjoy certain interactions and stuff, but I do have a love-hate relationship with it sometimes. And I don't think I'm the only one. I think we all kind of struggle
3: with it.
0: My dad used to say growing up that if people's names were on their license plates, people would be much more courteous drivers. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Yeah. I can't figure out if it's made us more inclusive or exclusive but i don't think it's going away the way i keep hoping
2: it feels like and i'm not the first person to say this but like as we become more connected we become more disconnected right like as we become more inclusive we become more reclusive and exclusive
0: who would you invite to your dream dinner party with actors you've worked with that you've learned from because you've worked with some amazing people at the
2: dream dinner party, Robin Williams would be there. He'd be sitting next to Samuel Jackson. I like this. Okay, wait. Will you tell me your memory of Robin? When I was eight years old, he taught me how to improv. He was like, just play? Like, what did he say? Well, we were doing a film. It was my very first film called Jack. And Francis Ford Coppola directed it. And we were at Francis's, uh wine vineyard. And they brought me in the room and Robin was there and he just talked to me. And then he said, we're going to play a little bit. And I just want you to say the first thing that comes to your mind. You know, it could be about anything. It could be about my appearance. It could be about where we're at. It could be. And we did that. And then we did it more and we kept doing it. And he taught me how to just stay so present and listen and react and how that kind of takes you down the trail. If you make a right. He makes a left. Just follow him. And so in those exercises, it was just he just would do it with me over and over and over. And so the scene that I'm in with him is totally ad-lib.
0: That's amazing. I love that at 10, you were kind of protected by such a kind man. Oh, he was so beautiful. Okay, wait. Samuel L. Jackson. What did you learn from him?
2: So I played Sam's daughter in a film called Eve's Bayou when I was 10. It was my second film. Sam was incredible He gave me so much confidence And like Just trust yourself Just trust yourself You got it Which is such a generous gift To give an actor That's awesome Yeah I love Sam Okay Do you have a third person? Hell yeah Alfrey Woodard Just because Alfrey Is one of the most amazing people Of all time And she makes everything More lively
0: She is To me Grace And class And intelligence Yeah Yeah What do you think is the meaning of life?
2: You know, I'm learning the meaning of life. But I tend to come back to this idea of unconditional love. I think achieving that towards ourselves and each other, I think, is the ultimate meaning of life. But I'm learning it. It's expanding. So come back to me in 10 years and maybe I'll have a deeper. (laughs) I love the idea of a 40s
0: check-in with you. I think you're going to love it. Journey, thank you so much I just love you and I adore you and and thank you for taking your nap time (laughs) in your trailer to spend with me. I so appreciate it.
2: Oh, I appreciate you so much. I've enjoyed this conversation.
0: Me too. So much.
2: Much love. Much love to you. I hope you don't have to shoot late. It's all good. I love what I do, so I can't complain. Bye, darling. Bye.
0: Hey, everyone. April Beyer is back now officially as my much needed co-host. As you know from previous episodes, April brings great advice, insight, and years of experience. I am so thrilled to have her. Hi, Erin. Hi. Erin, I'm here with April Beyer, the qualified person that you'll be
3: talking to. (laughs) Hi, (laughs) Erin.
0: Hi, April. Erin, tell us what's going on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. First of all, thank you guys so much for the time.
4: I really appreciate it. So basically, um, at the beginning of the pandemic, I was on dating apps and Hinge, and I wasn't living in New York City, but was planning on living in New York City. So I had my location set there. I met someone, we were chatting, we never met up, and then I decided to not move to the city yet. So it's been a year now and we've not met. We're planning on meeting soon. But there's like a big thing I haven't told him, which is my stepdad died from suicide two years ago. And it's just been a huge part of my life and my family's life. And I have a lot of like anxiety issues and kind of trauma responses from it too. And I feel like it kind of comes with a lot. And I'm kind of at the point now where I don't know like how to bring it up, especially since it's been a while. And I guess it's kind of a general thing too that I've been worried about, like how to bring up something like this to a new person. Yeah.
0: Erin, I'm really sorry. I think you get to a certain age where a lot of us have had personal experiences with suicide and it is a really confounding kind of grief because you're just left with questions and sadness. And I'm really sorry that that happened. Is your family okay? Is your mom all
2: right?
4: Yeah, she's okay. I'm living with her now, which is really nice to be together. And we were together through the pandemic and yeah, like we've definitely been a big support for each other. She's amazing. Like she's very brave, I think. And everyone's doing the best that we can do. Yeah.
0: Do you notice in the process of grieving, I don't really know much about the stages of grief. Do you think that Is there kind of light at the end of the tunnel a little bit with the time passing? Yeah, yeah, I think so. It kind of
4: feels like I'm at a point now where I've started to accept that it's happened. And yeah, it's definitely been an interesting journey. And I haven't really dealt with grief before or any major loss So yeah, I'm like navigating that in addition to it being something like so sudden, and like you said before, you're left with so many questions and it's just very complex. But yeah, I feel like my family definitely like we're all big supports for each other.
0: That's really good to hear. I'm just, oh man. So there's this guy, but you haven't met yet.
4: We video called. Um, it's such a strange situation. And when I was like writing out the email, I was like, this is kind of weird. Just in the sense that we've been talking for so long. We did a few video calls in the beginning. And I think we kind of both about saying it like it just doesn't feel right when you haven't actually met in person. Like it kind of feels like a little bit like stiff, I guess. And I think it's hard when you haven't met in person to like break down like that wall and like to get a little bit more intimate emotionally. So it kind of feels like a pandemic buddy that I've made.
0: Yeah, right. So your conversations, like how long do they last in length?
4: When we've videoed, it's only been like an hour. And then when we text, it's kind of like an ongoing conversation. And there'll be some weeks where it's not much. And I think like he has a very demanding job and I don't love texting anyways. Um, it's like check-in conversations, I feel like.
3: I don't know. It's very strange. So it's been pretty light then, it sounds like. Just light conversation, especially recently, right? Yeah. But you're pretty into him.
4: Yeah. My mom asked me this the other night and I was like, you know what I am. And I feel like usually when I'm talking to someone who's like a romantic interest, I'm usually like annoyed when they text me or like, I'll kind of feel like, ugh, like I don't want to answer. But with him, I always want to answer. And like, he's so nice. And that was part of the thing, too, in the beginning that kind of freaked me out and I think prevented me from saying anything very serious was that he seems to really have everything together, which I know probably isn't true. And But, like, I was kind of afraid that I would overwhelm him with, like everything and like also my anxiety how it's been as a result
0: how would you want him to react I guess that's the question
4: yeah no that's a good point because I think I haven't thought about how I would like him to react I feel like I always just think about like what the worst case scenario reaction would be but I think I would just like someone who just wants to listen because I think with suicide too it's just such a complicated topic and I think a lot of the times like people don't want to talk about it and then there's like the layer of him being my stepdad and something that I'm afraid of is people thinking it's not as bad because it's not my dad it's my stepdad and I'm always I feel like sometimes I have to like qualify my relationship. So I think if he could respond by like
3: not doing those things. This sounds like it was a special relationship and you just said, you know, people would devalue it because, well, it wasn't her father. So what was your relationship like with him?
4: Yeah. Yes. I met my stepdad like eight or nine years ago. So I was a teenager when him and my mom started dating. And as I got older, like college and now as an adult. I was definitely really close with him. I don't have the best relationship with my actual dad, and my stepdad was just extremely reliable, extremely supportive. Like he would drop everything to help me. And it was just the kind of thing where I was like, he's my stepdad, like he's chosen to love me unconditionally rather than having to or
0: yeah. And that's really beautiful, oh, bless your heart. Cuz I bet like probably when you were a teenager, you probably tried to push him away a lot. And then he just like continued to prove himself. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's exactly. It's really nice.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad you had that male father figure to show you what it looks like to stand up and hold space for a child and a woman, right? That you are today. You were gifted with that. And I'm so sorry it was brief, but what he gave you is forever because now you know better, right? You know what it looks like to be supportive and be supported and To be able to rely on someone. Yeah. You know, no one can devalue our relationships, regardless of whatever the label is, if we've done a really good job of expressing what that event or what that person meant to us. So, you know, in the dating world, especially with the pandemic and everybody's been doing these virtual dates and they are clunky and they're not perfect. And they're not really sustainable because people get bored. (laughs) Because at some point, it has to evolve into an in-person date. And it will soon. There's always the question of how much do I share? What do I share of my story? I've been working on that with a lot of women recently. And we all have a story, right? We all have something about our lives. And people have the hardest time sharing with new people because of fear. So I think you should ask yourself, maybe we can ask you today, why do you feel it's important to share this with him? And what are you afraid of if you do? Like, what is the worst case scenario?
4: I guess, like, the worst thing that can happen is that they, you know, leave or decide like they can't handle that and aren't part of the picture anymore.
3: Right. So, what's more important to you being fully known and embraced and accepted or somebody not being in your life that you really don't know that much anyway? What's worse? What's more painful? Yeah, definitely not being accepted. Right. So, we all want to be with somebody that knows us and loves us and accepts us and can be a good listener, but then we don't share. So it literally becomes a theory of, I want this, but then we're not doing the behavior that would present its possibility, right? You don't know what this guy is made of because you haven't shared. You're having the conversation with yourself and we don't know what he's capable of.
0: Yeah. Are you at all afraid that he might not understand what the impact is? Or are you worried about him not being able to kind of understand the gravity?
4: Yeah, I think so. And I think it's like a question I have like generally too, when I think about dating because up until now, it's not a part of me that I've really had to share with a new person. So you haven't had
0: to tell anybody new in your life. Everybody already knows. Yeah. April, tell me what you think about this idea I wonder if you say, because the way you framed it when you were telling us about who he was in your life, maybe you preface it by saying like, I have some big news that happened to me and I haven't had the opportunity because everybody in my life already knows this to actually tell somebody what happened.
3: Like maybe then he could help create a safe space for you. Well, we can't count on him to create the safe space. And so this is why when we share our story, we have to be really comfortable with the story for others to be comfortable with it too. And that doesn't mean you put it in a nice little bow, but you have to trust yourself before you trust others. I'm a big, big fan of transparency and honesty And there is a line between being completely mired in grief and the person can't get to know you because you're in that grief. But I'm a big fan of like sharing what is going on, because if we pick and choose who we share with, it takes longer to get to know people. And Erin, I would ask you beyond this horrific event in your life and this massive loss, are you normally good at sharing your feelings and intimate thoughts with people, new people?
4: I don't think so. It's funny because I like to have conversations about like mental health and I love hearing people's stories so much. And I think I am someone that people come to about things that are difficult for them and all of that. But I do think I have a hard time being vulnerable. And even with like any romantic interest in the past, because I haven't really had a relationship yet. And I always find that like it kind of does get to this point where we're like pals, but not.
0: So April, is that... Lack of vulnerability. Yeah, 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 yeah.
3: She's saying that she's pals with a lot of people when she meets them because she doesn't go deep. You can't get beyond the flirty kind of initial stage of dating or friendly pal if you're not sharing deeply. It is the thing that creates the connection that then creates the relationship. You know, I've never had anybody stay on superficial, lightweight topics and then go deeper into a relationship. It just doesn't happen. And again, there's a line— It's not about, oh, we have to completely share our grief and everything else. It's a combination of all of it. By the way, clearly family is important to you, Erin. I'm just wondering why on these calls or Zooms or whatever, there wasn't the, hey, you know, where do you come from? And do you have sisters and brothers? And what's your dad like? and What's your mom like? Those conversations, if they were happening early on, you would have said, my stepdad, um, yeah, on that, you know, my stepdad— So amazing. I met him when I was eight, nine, when my mom started dating him. And of course, like a lot of young kids, I pushed him away. And then I realized, wow, this guy is so there for me. And he was there and he was reliable and there wasn't anything he wouldn't do for me. And I'm not close with my own dad, unfortunately. So he stepped into that role. And so you're having the conversation, right, about what was and what is. And then you say, and then the most heartbreaking thing of all is that we lost him two years ago. To suicide. And what you've done is you've set it up so that we got the experience of, you know, your birth father isn't the one you're close to, but this man stepped in and became the father role for you and that there's loss for your mom. So now we're not just handling your grief. We're also feeling for you and going, oh, who was this guy, you know, and how was he with your mom and how did they meet? And so we're getting to know you we're not invested in your grief. We're invested in your life. And then the relationship goes deeper. And then we feel connected to you. And then we want to keep talking to you. And that's why these COVID video dates are failing. You know, we we call it the cliff at my office, right? They're not sustainable because people go, well, that's a conversation for in person. It's like, no, there's no time like the present to be real and authentic and vulnerable. Because when you share your life and your thoughts and feelings You can't possibly get hurt. There's literally nothing that can hurt you. People cannot take it well. They cannot have the tools to listen. But it doesn't matter because it can't make your pain any greater. It's like, this is what is going on. It's impacting me. And you're being kind of more on the superficial with him right now, which is not deepening your connection, but it's going on. You have a lot of anxiety. I would imagine you're in the house where he passed away. Yeah. So it's on top of you all day. And then it's this big thing, this elephant in the room that you're not talking about. So unfortunately, he's not getting to know you, right? Yeah. So it's not about when you share it. It's how you share it how you felt your own way through your story. One of my best friends in the world, we met when we were 30 and we went out for coffee. I'll never forget it. I rescued a dog from her at an event and we went for coffee right after. And she told me a story of her father dying in front of her in a scuba diving accident when she was 15. She had to go home and tell her mom, like dad's gone. And she told me that story in the first hour of knowing her. And it had been 15 years, right? So she had a little bit of more of a solve around the story at that point. But what was beautiful is that I got to say, what was he like? We didn't talk about the death so much. It was, what was your dad like? And do you look like him? And can I see a picture? And we bonded as friends, like forever friends, because she was so willing to open up and share. Because I didn't have to qualify for the sharing. She just lived her life that way. And that's the way I live my life, which is why I'm able to create really instant connection with people, whether it's a client or a friend or how I did it with my husband. There are no conversations that are off the table. Does that make sense?
4: Yeah. Yeah. No, I, and I was also talking to my mom. We were having a similar conversation where my mom is like that and she will meet someone at the grocery store. She's a waitress, so a customer and and she will share her story right off the bat. And so many times the other person will respond and say, I lost someone. And then they'll connect and they have this beautiful moment. And yeah, I think it's such a good point to look at it that way as like my story and being able to tell it and the other person on the other end, like isn't necessarily a factor. It's
3: Well, it's just because it's true, right? It's what is. And you're not saying process this for me or with me necessarily, but just know me. You're the one that said, I want to be fully known and accepted, but how can we know and accept you if we don't know what the heck is going on with you, right? And when you're sharing grief, it's also very important to share, like, hey, I had a good day today, and, you know, my mom had a bad day, and, like, it's weird. Like, people talk about grief, how it comes in, like, waves. Um, There's a girl, her name is Amanda Klutz, who lost her husband you know she's beloved by the entire country now and she you know has a talk show and it's because she was sharing with perfect strangers on social media and so the world feels connected to her and she's she's received so much love and support because people have said i lost somebody or i know that feeling or you know i'm a single mom now because my something happened to my partner so you give us the opportunity to feel you give us the opportunity to grow and you give us the opportunity to know and love you when you share with us So it's like a gift you give us when you share. I found out that my college boyfriend committed
0: suicide. I hadn't talked with him for 15 years, but still people, you know, they would ask me about it. And their questions, I don't know, they felt kind of inappropriate maybe. I guess I'm asking, is there another side to this? And I wonder how Erin can set boundaries for
3: herself thinking about the future. When people hear about that, they could be clumsy with the how. Like, how did it happen? That's what I mean. Yeah, it could be kind of gross, right? But I guess my question back, and to all of us, is why is there shame of this? I had an uncle, a brilliant, brilliant, surgeon that committed suicide a few years ago, and the family won't talk about it. They won't talk to me about it. And I'm like, are you kidding? That's hard. I want so badly to get on the phone with my cousin and talk to her. And I know I could be helpful, but she just refuses because there's shame with suicide, right? It feels like a different kind of conversation than somebody died of a heart attack. But when people commit suicide, they're in pain, it could be emotional or physical pain and that's a bigger conversation for us to have so we have to, first we have to just get rid of the shame of what we feel about that right and anna when that happened with your ex-boyfriend from college you know it's your own acceptance of it which is hard for people to share. But I'm actually writing about like curiosity and emotional curiosity and how it can be something that is more shared than we do now, which is the direct link to connection. And if somebody were to ask me about my family member that it happened to, I wouldn't mind. I would be so glad that somebody would ask me about how, because then the real story and the real conversation could begin. It begins with us. We make it comfortable for other people. And if it's too personal, you can always say, It's really difficult for me, so I may not be able to share that right now. But just know that when people ask, even if they do it in a clumsy way, they're generally asking because they want to know and because they care. And they're curious. So if we say to them, oh, no, 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 I can't talk to you about this. You're new to me. You don't deserve to hear this information yet because you don't know me really well and we're not familiar yet. You've now just completely broken a potential cord of connection. So you got to do what you feel comfortable with. But you could just say, oh, it's really hard for me to talk about that one. Can we put a pin in that or pretty traumatic story? And I'll get there. But you have to acknowledge the person that asked because they could be coming from a really, really good place. But most people, whether it's divorce or a death or whatever, a lot of people go, I can't believe this person asked me. It's like, really? (laughs) That's the good news is that they did ask. I guess that's just a way
0: I look at it. I think that's important. I think that Erin should be kind of armed with that knowledge as she goes forward in life. And you just never know what maybe the questioner had gone through in their own life.
3: Yes. And do you see that though, Erin? It's so interesting how you told us that you're the person in your friend circle that they go to for support and advice. You're somebody who likes to discuss stuff but yet you do it with people you know really well, but in your relationships and why you haven't had a deeper relationship yet is because you're keeping everything kind of superficial and lightweight a little bit, right? Yeah. If you turned it in your mind of like, well, this is the good stuff. It isn't the pain. It's the real thing that's going on. It's who you are. You love to do that deeper dive. It's just, you love to do it with people you trust. And I say you create the trust by doing the deeper dive, not the other way around. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you, April. If you all meet me, like you can ask me anything. And I will never, ever tell you that anything you ask me is too personal. I will give it up immediately, whether I know you for five minutes or five years. That's just who I am. Like To me, there's no choice in the matter. Because I don't want to live this lifetime without people knowing me.
4: Yeah. Yeah. So my mom, being someone who shares so much so openly I just think it's amazing. I like the connections that she has with people and how you mentioned you have with others. And I think it's funny because I was thinking I have had opportunities to share this. And every time it
0: comes around, I just like avoid it. But I don't know why. This is where I can come in with like, you can use me, Erin. Next time you're talking to him, you can say, all right, this is going to sound really crazy. But I talked to this actress (laughs) and her very qualified co-host. And I kind of want to tell you something big in my life that I haven't yet. And they recommended I do so so you could get to know me. If you are at all interested in dating him outside of the pandemic, I think you'll get your answer in telling him how much he shares back with you. Does it totally? Which I think April and I think it will open up the relationship to this different level, which would be really awesome. But I think sooner rather than later, if it's comfortable, if the timing's right, it's all about the timing.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that April said before, like with the Zoom dates, feeling like, oh, that's an in-person topic. And like, that was my thinking in the beginning. And then it just kind of kept happening. Like we just continued to not see each other. But I have gotten the sense that like, I know he has so many things to share, but I just think also at this point, I'm like, what would the setting, like, I don't know. I feel like I just don't
3: know how to bring it up. Well, you said earlier that he's really nice and that he seems to have it all together. So if he's really nice and has it all together, then he's going to be really, really good at absorbing this story and this information, right? Because he is so calm. You're not going to overwhelm him because you get the image of him that he is together. And by the way, it doesn't even matter because this kind of information doesn't break or make relationships. It is what it is. And you can always retroactively, like Anna is saying, and go back and be like, you know, there's been something I've been wanting to tell you and share that with him. And the way you get really good at sharing this tougher stuff is by being the person that always shares the good stuff too. Meaning you share your joy. Like you're like, oh my God, this thing happened to me. It made me so happy. Or my mom said something the other day and she's just so amazing. That way, when you start to share deeper, harder stuff, it balances it, right? And then nobody is overwhelmed by you because they're so accustomed to you sharing in a transparent way of, I share positive, I share joy, and I share grief, and I share frustration. I share all of it because it's all true. It's the people that either don't share it all, or they go fully on in with the gas pedal on, here's my grief, and here's all the stuff that's going on. And that can be really overwhelming to a new person. But if we've been kind of letting it all out with all of us, nobody defines it of like, this is what she's sharing that is dark and scary. It's just she's a person that shares. Yeah. You're balancing out how people receive you. And it's never too late. Like Anna was saying, it's like, might as well do it now because it's not going to change anything. Yeah. So when you hear someone's story of loss... It's not just the grief. It's the grief is the starter story. But then there's all this other stuff where we know you and then we get to know your mom and like, oh, why did she choose him? And what is she like? And you think it's going to start and stop at the grief story, but it's just the beginning of knowing you. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Erin, I
0: bet he was really proud of you.
3: Yeah. Thank you.
0: I bet he felt really lucky that you were in his life.
3: And I love the fact that you said he just chose to love you. You know, he didn't have to. I think step-parents can be some of the best relationships of people's lives, especially if, you know, the person who gave birth to us wasn't amazing at it. You weren't dealt the good dad card. So you're super, super lucky that you got to see that. It's going to really help you in your relationship life going forward to know what that vision is of a good guy. Yeah. I'm so sorry you lost him, but the memories and what you have from him are still here.
0: Yeah. Erin, please give my love to your mom. I will and i love you and my heart goes out to both you guys and thank you so so much for talking with us
4: thank you so much i really appreciate it and it was really lovely to talk to you both you as well
0: me too have a wonderful rest of your day thank you you too bye erin bye
3: erin thank you bye